We're going to continue this morning our study in the book of Ephesians. As I've told you in the past, Ephesians is a letter by the Apostle Paul in which he gives us the grammar, what scholars, uh, several scholars have called the grammar of the Gospel. Paul begins his letter with mostly verbs in the indicative mood. What this means is he's simply telling people, here's who you are. You're new creatures, new creations in Christ, and here's who you are. And then halfway through the book, he switches and he goes into the what we call the imperative mood. And now he's going to tell us, because who you are, here is what you're to do. Here's how you act in accordance with who you are. Now, if you get those reversed, understand this, it's deadly serious. It is the, the thing that separates historic Christianity from every other religion in the world, if you get those backwards, then you no longer have Christianity. And that's a pretty remarkable statement, but it is true. If you live your life out of the imperatives, in other words, God has given you a list of what to do, and you go and do those things, and you try to say, well, by doing them, I am this, I become this, You no longer have Christianity. You just have religion. And you will fail. And you'll spend your life trying to fix things and try to figure things out. And into that environment, God has spoken His truth. The truth of His Gospel. Not that we are not to obey His commands. But that we are to obey His commands from a different motive, a different heart, a changed and renewed heart. And that's what we're going uh, to continue looking at today. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn in uh, in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. We're going to read in chapter 2. And uh, I'm going to begin in verse 11. Now last week we read the first 10 verses and talked about those. But this morning we're going to begin with verse 11. And I'll try to tie the two sections together uh, because they do hang together. Now hear God's Word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access to one Spirit, in one Spirit to the Father. So then, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into God's into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Last week, uh, we talked about these first ten verses. And in those ten verses, Paul is telling us uh, we need to know ourselves. We need to know who we are. And he says, here's who you were or who you are without Jesus Christ. You are dead in your sins and trespasses and you are children of wrath. A terrible condition. A condition uh, that uh, William Hendrickson, uh, the New Testament scholar, says is a condition of complete and utter helplessness. In other words, we cannot help ourselves to reach out to God. He must come and do something to save us, to rescue us. We are in every way helpless without any ability of our own to save ourselves. And to remedy that, you must know who God is. And God is the one who comes in rich love, tender mercy, caring for His people. And what He does is He makes us alive. We don't make ourselves alive. He makes us alive. And he says that he takes us in those first ten verses and he, we are risen with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. He takes a hopeless and helpless situation and he himself remedies uh, that situation. And he tells us that he does it for a purpose. And that's basically what we're going to talk about this morning. These next uh, 11 verses or so talk about God's purpose for you and for me and for His church. The church, Christ the King church, but His church universal as well. People of different denominations and different faith traditions. Within the Christian household, the larger household of faith, we are all to be striving for this. This is of utmost importance. It is God's purpose and ours. And here it is. God has nothing less in mind for you and I and for His world than a new humanity. A completely reconstituted and new humanity. A humanity that is completely shaped and formed in the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, Paul says, and I'm going to give you three things this morning, that He says we need to look for. We need to look for a redemptive memory. A redemptive memory. Secondly, we need to look for radical unity. Radical unity. So, a redemptive memory, radical unity, and finally, we will find a new humanity. So, let's look at this first one. Redemptive memory. Look at verses 11 and 12. Paul says twice, and he says he uses the word remember. And interestingly enough, this is the first time he uses an imperative verb. This is not uh, a suggestion. This is a command. Remember. 
Remember. He says it twice. He's very adamant. You are supposed to remember something. Now I know all of you, and myself included, sometimes remembering the past can bring great pain. It can cause bitterness. It can cause anger. It can paralyze you. As you remember the past. Sometimes you're remembering something really good from the past. And yet at the same time you think, gosh, I'll never have that again. I'll never experience that again. Perhaps the birth of your children. Perhaps your wedding day. And you think, wow, that was such a glorious time. But now my marriage, yikes, not doing too good. You see, we, we can look back and there's fondness and goodness to our memories, but they can also bring us great pain. They can cause you to be bitter, angry. They can cause you to stagnate. You can say, oh, you know, things are never going to be the way they are or were. And we can give up. And some of us do have, and I know many of you, uh, I've, met, I've talked to you, and I know that your past includes many wounds and many scars. Some of you, not so much. But there are people whose pasts are deeply scarred, deeply wounded. And so it's understandable. And Paul comes into that, but don't think Paul doesn't. Or Paul had a past. His past was he was a murderer. And he murdered not bad people, he murdered good people. He was murdering Christians. He was hauling them in prison. He was tearing apart families. He was persecuting the church. And every time Paul got a chance, he told that story. He remembered his past. He remembered his journey. But he did it a certain way. And that's what I want to talk about. Paul redeemed his past. And so must you. By having a redemptive memory. He says, therefore, everything we talked about in 1 through 10, he says, because of all of that in 1 through 10, remember this. Here's what he wants you to remember. Remember, at one time, you were Gentiles called the uncircumcision. He could have used even a more pejorative term, but in our, uh, in our words, that doesn't strike us as being too bad. Circumcised, uncircumcised, who cares, right? I mean, we're modern people, that doesn't matter. But in that context and in that world, to be called uncircumcised was to be called a dog. It was to be called filthy or unclean. It was to use a pejorative term in such a way that it would have shocked you. We could find other words. Many of you know what those words are where we criticize somebody's ethnicity or somebody's race or somebody's background and we use very pejorative uh, and cruel terms in order to do that. Paul says, don't forget that. Remember it. As painful as it might be to you, as angry as it might make you to be called some pejorative term based on uh, uh, your race and ethnicity, Paul says, don't forget it. You were called this at one time by those who are called the circumcision. Remember, though, that because of that, that memory should bring these things to mind. Three things. Look at what he says. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel 
You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were without hope. You had no hope. And you were without God in the world. Paul in no way soft pedals the condition of this world. He tells the Gentiles straight up, you know what? You better face the facts that Diana, the God of the Ephesians that's here in the city where I sent this letter, she's not going to save you. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. Today, we want to tell everybody that everybody's got God, everybody's okay, everybody's equal. And that's fine, folks. You know, I'm okay with that. Let me tell you, I'm okay with that as long as we do one thing. As long as those people who are saying that, that everybody's equal and everybody's, you know, there's no difference between anybody in the world, as I'm okay with that as long as we get rid of Jesus Christ. If we could just erase Him from history, it would be wonderful. Yes? Wouldn't it be great? Just scratch His name out. And say He didn't occur. He didn't live. He didn't die. He didn't go to the cross. And everything will be well. Then you can earn your way to heaven by your good works. How would you like that? That's the only alternative. Do you realize that? And very few churches have the courage to stand up and say that today. They want to mythologize Jesus and make Him into a fairy tale. And folks, I'm not going to do that. Neither is our church. He was a real person. Not only was He a person, He was God Almighty in the flesh. He was who He said He was. And He did what He said He did. And we believe it. And because of that, it changes everything that we look at. We don't look at other people as less than us because of this Scripture. We look at other people as better than us because of this Scripture. Who are you? If you're going to take this serious, folks, you are the uncircumcised. You are those without hope. You are those that had no hope. You had nothing to commend you to God. If you take this serious, if you really remember who you were without Jesus Christ, if you honestly take that into your soul and let it go down deep into your heart, you're going to look around at everybody else, whether they're a Muslim, whether they're a Jew, whether they're Hindu, whether they're Buddhist, makes no difference what they are. You're going to look around at everybody else and you're going to say, wow, these people are better than me. If you take it serious, and Paul's asking you to take it serious, he's saying remember who you were. Remember your journey. Remember where God found you in the dark, in the sewer in the filth of this world, in the brokenness of your sin, hopeless and helpless. Don't ever forget you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Don't ever forget you were a child of wrath. Don't ever forget that your works and your effort and your merit could never have earned you His love. That His love comes to you freely by grace plus nothing. Don't ever forget that. And if you do that, that will change you. It will change the DNA of your very being. It will change who you are. You will actually, Christians are always called intolerant. I don't understand that. We are the most tolerant people in the world. And people that don't practice tolerant Christianity can't even call themselves Christians because they haven't read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Take it serious what he's saying here. We're Christless. 
Dr. Henderson says, Hendrickson says, we have no champion. We have no representative. We had no savior. We were completely obliged to save ourselves. Do you see what he's saying? We were uh, alienated. We were stateless. Do you realize that most Gentiles had no citizenship? They had no civil or social or political rights. The Apostle Paul being an exception. He was a Roman citizen. But most people weren't. Most people had no rights. That is so hard for Americans to get into their heads because we are so conditioned to believe that we have inalienable rights. And we do under the Constitution of the United States. At least for a while. But what happens when they take the Constitution away? Or what happens when some government comes away and takes away your citizenship? Takes away your rights like they did in Nazi Germany in 1933? What happens then? Oh, well, it could never happen in America. Well, that's because there's no blacks here in this room. Right? But there was a time when my own family, folks, because we're Middle Eastern, we're Lebanese, my mother, my aunt, and my other two aunts were not allowed to join a sorority here in El Paso, Texas because they were Lebanese. Do you understand? That's in our lifetime. That's within our lifetime. When you couldn't vote because of the color of your skin. When you couldn't join a country club because you were Jewish or perhaps you were Roman Catholic, only white Anglo-Saxon Protestants could join this country club. Do you understand? That's within our lifetime. What happens when those rights are stolen and taken away or not, not given to you? Do you see where Paul is taking us? He's taking us to a place where we understand what we are or could be without Jesus Christ. That all those other things, all those privileges that we have are wonderful and good and gracious. But without Him, we are strangers, He says. Friendless. We have no spiritual, religious identity. No rights. Therefore, He summarizes it all and says, we have, without Jesus Christ, you have no hope, and you are without God. Paul is simply preaching a sermon and he's telling the congregation, he's saying, look, the best thing you can do for yourself here today, this morning, Christ the King, pretend I'm the Apostle Paul, if only. He says to you, look, the best thing in the world for you is to remember your poverty. Remember how bereft you were. Remember how hopeless and helpless and stranger and alien. Don't forget that. Go to the bottom because where will you find Jesus? Let me ask you, Christ the King, where do you find Jesus? Where? Where? At the top? Where do you find Him? At the bottom. You find Him on a cross. You find Him at the bottom. 
you find Him weak and broken. You find Him poverty-stricken in a manger. No room to lay His head as the hymn goes. You find Jesus Christ in the weakest, most impoverished state. Poor, He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. But we don't want to go there because it's scary, isn't it, to go down there to that place and say, wow, that's really who I was. Yes. But don't be afraid to go there. Let everything go. Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go this mortal. I let it all go. I want nothing. So that I can go naked and empty and broken to the flood of God's grace and be clothed by God's righteousness. There, I want to go naked. I want to go empty. I want to go bereft. I want to be an uncircumcised Gentile. I want to go that way. And I know if I go that way, I'll find Him. Paul says your memory needs to be redemptive. If your memory is condemning you and crushing you and telling you're worthless and no good, the redemptive memory was saying yes. The redemptive memory will say I agree. In fact, if you only knew the half of it, you wouldn't believe that I could possibly be a Christian. But the reality is I went down there and I found my King, I found my Savior, and that memory, remembering that, brings you back. And it brings you to a place where you can do the second thing that He said. You see, look, let me just say this very quickly. I don't want to pass this up. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said the reason that it's so important to have a redemptive memory is because we get what he called spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. We forget. And what takes the place of this redemptive memory is pride. And very quickly, he's how he characterized it. And I'll give these to you and then we'll move on. Three forms of pride. Self-salvation. Pride in the form of self-salvation. People say, well, you know, I'm not that bad. I'm really pretty good person. And I actually deserve the good that comes into my life. And Paul's warning them, no, no, remember who you were. Because it will defeat that kind of pride that, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm better than the next guy. There's no doubt about that, folks, that you can find somebody that you're better than if you look around this room. Yes? But there's also people that are better than you. So what do you do about them? Do we either knock them down or we falsely elevate ourselves? Because we all got to be equal. And so self-salvation, I deserve what I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I really deserve it. You know, it's only fair that God gives me this blessing. Or there's the pride and the same thing, pride in the form of self-hatred or self-loathing. And this we find particularly in our circles in in uh, Bible-believing churches, I'm no good for nothing. I'm a piece of dirt. I'm the biggest sinner in the world. I'm filthy. My heart is uh, so wretched. Uh, my heart is more wicked. And we quote all these Scriptures that have to do with unregenerate people and we apply them to ourselves. Those of you that have been in theology class know uh, how, how I go on about that. We apply all these things to ourselves when in fact it's just a form of self-pride. No, you're not the worst person in the world. 
In fact, most of you are probably pretty good people. I'm, I'm a wonderful person. I mean, most of I mean, really, I mean, we're not, we're not as bad as we could be. But we don't want to heap on self-hatred and self-loathing because it's just another kind of pride. And then there's the third one, what I call functional atheism. And that's what we just forget about God altogether. And we say things, in fact, in our day today, you hear people say it all the time. Oh, whatever. Whatever. It's this attitude of uh, extreme fatalism. Oh, whatever. We act as if God doesn't exist. It's functional atheism. Even if you believe in Him, we might act like He doesn't live or, or, or exist. None of these are redemptive memory. These will kill you. They'll crush you. He's saying, no, you need to remember how bad you were, but you need to remember how bad you were in light of how much you're loved and how much He loves you. And that's what this next section is about. Radical unity. Look at verses 13 through 18. I'll go through this quick, I promise. There's, there's a product of our collective personal memory and a product of our collective uh, corporate memory. In other words, as we remember redemptively, it's going to take us to a certain place. And look what he says here. In verse 13, again, these wonderful words, but now. Before, in uh, uh, verses 1 through 10, he, he got to verse 4 and he says, but God. Now he says, but now. In Christ, look what he says. Here's the remedy. Here's where the redemptive memory will take you. You were far off. A spatial condition. You know, you were light years away. He brought near. How? How did he do that? How did he bridge the cap between those two? Blood. By blood. By the death of someone. The death of someone bridged that gap. Not just an example. Jesus didn't just come and give us a good example of being a good person, although He was. He did more than that. He took the punishment, as Eric sang in that beautiful old hymn. He took the punishment for us. He took our place. His blood for ours. His life for ours. Far off, brought near. He brought peace. A relational condition. Peace between people and between Him and God. He made us one. He brought unity. How? Look what it says. How did He do it? He broke it down in His flesh. Another euphemism, if you will, for giving His life. In other words, here were the Jews, God's chosen people, and indeed they were. And here are the Gentiles, uncircumcised dogs, if you will. And he said, I'm going to break down that wall that separates them so that there can be a new humanity. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to plunge myself, my life, my very body into that breach and I will be torn apart so they can be brought near. He made us one. Them and us. Us and them. And finally, reconciled us with God. Let me ask you something, folks, and I've asked many times the same question. If Jesus Christ didn't exist, 
What would you have to do in order to earn God's favor? What would you have to do? Let that sink in for a minute. What would you have to do? Now some of you may say, well, you know, I wouldn't have to do too much. I haven't sinned that much. I've only sinned a little bit. Okay, good, fine. Put them on a scale. What do you have to do to fix that? Well, I have to do a certain amount of good, right? Are you with me? Everybody tracking? I've sinned a little bit, so I just need a little bit of salvation. How do you know when you get there? Who's going to give you absolution? Who's going to come along and say to you, oh, that was enough. That's enough. You know, by the way, I've never met anybody that's honest who's ever said that. They all know that the weight is too much. Yes? They all know. I know. In fact, I know that the weight is so crushing on that side that I have no way of balancing it out. I could live ten lifetimes and I just would never make much headway. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's what it means to be impoverished. To know that you have no way of making it up. How would you do it? What price? What price do we pay for unity with one another? Is what Paul's saying. Saying, is there anything that we can let separate us? And you see, it took something brutal. So we cannot look down our nose at anybody, folks. The worst sinners in the world up to the greatest people in the world, we all stand before God impoverished. And the great Presbyterian preacher, James Stewart, one of my favorites, long dead, he said this, and I'd like to close with this and make one last point. Listen, it took something brutal. It took something unthinkable. What price unity? Here's what it took. What kind of man is this? All man and yet all God. He brings together in His being a startling coalescence of contrarieties. In Jesus, we see that He was the meekest and lowliest of the sons of men, yet He spoke of coming in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that, these, that they said the demons cried out in terror at His coming. Yet He was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with Him and the little ones nestled in His arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind towards sinners, yet no one ever spoke so red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed He would not break. His whole life was love. Yet He demanded of the Pharisees how they would expect to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for stark realism, He has all of us stark realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully He strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over themselves in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in His eyes. He saved others. 
But at the last, Himself, He could not save. There's nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confront us in the Gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. So when we ask ourselves, why would we be angry with one another in your marriage, with your children, in the church, things that we, that we get divisive and find fault with one another and dis, disunify ourselves over. If you can find anything that is worth overcoming what He did for us, then fine, be angry. But if you can't, then what He's saying is join us with redemptive memory as we all remember who we were. Radical unity. We move into radical unity and let all the things that separate us and break us down go. And we become a new humanity. Look at these last verses, 19 through 20 there. 22. We're no longer strangers. We're fellow citizens. We're members of the household of God. A holy temple. Citizens. Now you have a country. Children. You have all of the rights and privileges of a child. Complete, unconditional love. Acceptance and grace. The embrace of a parent. And finally, a holy temple. A place where God promises to dwell with you and I forever and never leave us, never forsake us. Will you, I'm asking you folks, will you let God redeem your past? Will you let Him do that? If you will, it will create radical unity. You'll actually actually start to love each other like we're supposed to. Instead of being superficial about our love, we can truly love each other even with all our flaws, even with all our failures, even with all our sin. We can actually love each other and become what El Paso needs desperately, a community that believes it is a new humanity. A new humanity, salt and light for a place. El Paso needs us. They need this church and they need many churches like us who believe the gospel, Jesus Christ, given on our behalf that we might give ourselves to the world. Will you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thanks for these words of our, our great Apostle Paul. We pray that you'll burn them down deeply into our heart. There are things, Father, uh, that we separate ourselves from others for such silly reasons. Some maybe are worthwhile. Doctrinal issues that need to be defended, we will stand for those. But those are pretty rare. Usually we argue over so many things that are petty. And we're willing to look down our nose at other people because of their race, their ethnicity, their social standing, the amount of money they might have. Oh God, forgive us and help us to unify our hearts around Jesus Christ and so doing, find true love and unity with others. I pray You'll do that for us, Father. Let it start here in this church, in this small church, that we might go forth and be uh, a a light on a hill, a city, a light set on the, the, the side of a hill. 
to light up our city. I pray you'll do that. In Christ's name, amen.